On JPAM's Closer Look, we will be talking to leading authors published in the Journal of Policy Analysis and Management on timely topics such as healthcare, education, immigration reform, and economics. Hi, everybody. Our guest today is Carolyn J. Heinrich. She's the Patricia and Rhodes Hart Professor of Public Policy Education and Economics at Vanderbilt University. Thanks for joining us today, Dr. Heinrich, and welcome to the podcast. Thanks very much. Yeah, I'm really happy to have you here today. We're going to be talking about your recent publication in JPAM entitled Consequences of the Administrative Burden for Social Safety Nets that Support the Healthy Development of Children. This important work is co-authored with uh, four of your colleagues, Seiyo Camacho at Vanderbilt University, Sarah Clark Henderson at Vanderbilt University, Monica Hernandez and the Department of Economics at the Universidad EAFIT, and Ila Joshi, who is an education researcher at SRI International. So your article opens with a a pretty poignant quote from a Mr. Garcia, and of course these are all... uh, fictitious names, uh, but but real people that, that you all talk to uh, in the course of your research. And the quote is about his struggle to get his kids' health care reinstated. And he said, what do they have against poor people? I submitted my application four times. The last time they asked me to submit proof of income, I sent them a bank statement with $4 in my account. His kids went two years without access to vital public programs, including uh, health coverage largely due to paperwork problems in his renewal process. So they had it, uh, and then they lost it because something went wrong in in the renewal process. And in a nutshell, this is what your paper's all about, both why these things happen, as well as the consequences of this happening, and then ultimately, and most importantly, how can we fix it uh, via public policy, governments, non-government organizations? Um, Is that right? Yes, that's right. In fact, I think the important point about Mr. Garcia's situation is that his children always qualified to receive Medicaid. Um, They're U.S. citizens and they, as he mentioned with his family's income, they they qualified by income levels. And um, there were other circumstances why it was very important for the kids to have access to health care. And so it was never the case that they weren't qualified or eligible, but they went without their health care benefits for several years as he worked to get the children reinstated in the program. Mm -hmm. And the challenges that came up in that renewal process um, is related to, or or an example of one of the the more technical terms in the title of your paper, um, and that is administrative burden. And we've talked about administrative burden before on the podcast, most recently with Elizabeth Linos. And you yourself have done some very important research on administrative burden as well, uh, you know, prior to this. And just to fix ideas then, what is it, administrative burden and, and what are some examples of it? Sure. I mean, I think once people understand the concept, they start realizing it's pretty much a part of all of our lives, administrative burden. So I can give an example. When I when I moved um, from the state of Wisconsin to Texas, I had to get my Texas driver's license. And so I 
Before I went, I tried to inform myself, right? I went on the website and looked at what kinds of documents I would need to bring and thought I had everything with me and uh, went to the to the uh, driver's license office, right? The state office where you um, go to get your driver's license. And you know, some of the burden, of course, is, is the fact that you have to you know, be able to figure out where to go to get that information and, mm-hmm. and get there. And that's expected, right? We all know we have to do those things as part of getting important to document like your driver's license. But I mean, when I went there and they looked through my information and they told me that I needed to, to have my, because I had uh, changed my name when I was married, I needed a marriage certificate to, to confirm that. And so it was kind mm. of interesting that um, I did not see that on the website and I was surprised. I had never been asked that before, but I had to go home, dig up a marriage certificate, come back. I, and I think I went, you know, it took me three times before I had everything I needed, despite the fact that I had tried to prepare myself. And so mm-hmm. that, you know, additional documentation, which was not you know, explicitly part of, of their communications um, added to my costs, right? I had to come mm-hmm. back. I had to get back in line. And so that is what we might call an administrative burden. So the point is administrative um, burdens may have purposes, right? They need to document that I am eligible to have a Texas license. And I need to bring um, the information they need to verify that. But we'd like to have those costs of doing that be as low as possible for all of us. So that's an example I think that a lot of people can relate to of administrative burden. And like I said, once you start thinking about it, you'll think all kinds of ways in which you mm-hmm. encounter administrative burdens in your life. Yeah. And and your article that we're going to talk about today is about how those burdens or, or some other people might call them ordeal mechanisms because they create an ordeal you have to, to fight through. Prevent a lot of people in this country, especially children, from accessing the benefits and the social safety net that they are entitled to, um, and, th- and that in some cases they, they really need. And so what are some of the social safety net programs in the U.S.? And, and your paper is talking about Tennessee specifically. Um, what are some of the social safety net programs that we're going to be talking about today where access to them might be held up by these administrative burdens. Sure. So um, thinking specifically about children, right? And the challenge for children is that they have to rely on adults, right, to do mm-hmm. to do that work for them. And so, you know, the so for example, you think of the program we have women, infants and children, also gone, you know, known by the acronym WIC. And that program provides access to essential early nutritional benefits for children who, you know, we may be concerned because of their poverty, are at risk of getting adequate nutrition. And um, that's a program that should be, you know, widely accessible or easily accessible to the families that are qualified for it. But for example, um, one of the things we encountered in our, our study in Tennessee was an example where a father who is undocumented, but his child is a U.S. citizen, you know, went to the WIC office and he had his child's birth certificate, right, and confirmation of their eligibility. And the person at the WIC office said, well, they needed to see his passport or his ID 
And, um, you know, he didn't, his passport had expired and they said they wouldn't accept his expired passport. So, but when you look at the actual program um, guidelines, that is not a requirement. It is um, something that was added on by the person he encountered at the office. So, you know, that's an example of, of an administrative burden that we would like to see done away with because it's it's actually has no serves no per- legitimate purpose. Um, okay. Another, of course, we looked at Medicaid access to you know services that might be provided through the schools for for children who meet certain you know qualifications and needs. Um, so, for example, therapy services that students might be um, have access to. So there are a variety of ways in which um, those social safety nets, nutritional programs, as I mentioned, health care, um, other types of services that students need, educational supports that are part of our social safety net for families um, who who benefit right from having those services available to our children. And, you know, importantly, we, we care a lot about children because we want them to get off to a healthy start. We know that if we do that, um, we give them a foundation to grow stronger and be more productive uh, later themselves. So, yeah, and and I mean, th- two of the things you mentioned, nutrition and healthcare. I mean, they're they're sort of fundamentally necessary and important uh, for for child development, and that's really, I mean, the, the fundamental goal of these safety net programs is to you know, protect people and, and Mm -hmm. ensure, uh, uh, some sort of minimum standard of living and really protect them from unexpected shocks to the family, things like job loss or a medical emergency. Um, but the other part of, and, and since we're talking about children is that the other part of these programs is to really sort of protect and support people that can't take care of themselves, uh, like children. Is there anything you want to elaborate on there uh, with regards to sort of how these safety net programs are, I don't know, thinking about them for children versus adults might be a little bit different? Sure. I mean, I think the one thing that's important to note is that, you know, we do have federal programs that provide resources for states, for example, to ensure that children have access to to health insurance. So we have a children's health insurance program. And of course, states can do their own thing in administering that, right? So that's why you have, for example, across states, you have different rates of percentage of, of kids who are eligible for those um, public health insurance programs connected or not connected. So some states um, you know, we have only a couple percent of, of children who who are missing access to those benefits if they're eligible. In other states, it's much larger. Um, for example, I had that kind of shock when I moved from Wisconsin to Texas, where we had only, uh, you know, like three, two to three percent of our children who were eligible for, for public health insurance were not insured. And when I got to Texas, it was more than a third of those kids who were eligible who didn't. So it does say how those programs are administered and how we reach out to those families and how we guide them or assist them through the process can make a difference as to whether or not those those children are getting, as you said, these essential supports early in their lives. Mm-hmm. And th- I think the other thing to, to keep in mind that, that some people might not think about or be aware of is that 
not only do the children benefit greatly from these safety net programs, but society as a whole benefits as well because there are big spillovers or social benefits of the programs too. Uh, How does that work in practice? Well, I mean, in general, I mean, we know that if, you know, if kids, as, as we were talking, if kids have early access to good nutrition, they're better able to learn. And we know that that learning, early learning builds a foundation for better learning later. And if we address health limitations or other aspects of the home um, home situation or context that um, make it challenging for for kids to maximize their potential. The earlier we do that, the you know better course we set them on for the future. And so, you know, we know what happens when you know, for example, kids drop out of school. Um, they're less likely to hold a job. They're less likely to you know, themselves be productive as adults and be able to nurture the next generation. So it's really um, an important, these important early investments are, so in coming back to administrative burden um, that we've been talking about, there are burdens associated with applying for receiving these benefits. You know, if there's a group we want to try to reduce um, those um, barriers or hoops they have to jump through to get through, doing that for children. And that involves, of course, as you mentioned, working with the adults who care for them. It's, it's, it's a good place for us to be focusing on what we can do. Right. And so, yeah, for sure. I, I think that's one of the big benefits is that in the long run, kids are going to be, you know, stay in school, get a better mm-hmm. education that leads to higher wages, higher employment rates, and so on down the road. But the other thing you said I just want to double down on is doing this early is almost always cheaper than doing it later, right? And sort of like addressing a health problem early on, um, addressing a a learning disability or a a behavioral problem in school Mm -hmm. early on is easier, but also cheaper uh, usually when we do it early on. Yeah. So it it saves money in terms of social outlays later too. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. So I think think it's important for for people to recognize that not only do these individual kids and families really benefit, but but it's good for for everybody. And society Mm -hmm. as a whole benefits in in having a more educated society, a more productive workforce, um, less uh, spending outlays down the road. Now, We've mentioned these administrative burdens sort of as we've been going along. And I do want to come back to something you said at the beginning, which is that it's not like these are are totally pointless. There is some Mm -hmm. legitimacy to, you know, verifying you are who you say you are before you get a driver's license. Now, the the question, of course, is like how much, uh, uh, how much is too much, I guess, and so one of the common examples of administrative burden is just lots of paperwork, lots of documentation. What's the rationale for these requirements? Um, what's the rationale for these, I guess, legitimate ones? Mm-hmm. Well, there's, there's, one, there's one perspective, and that is that the people will try to get access to benefits regardless of whether they qualify if they can, right? And so, mm-hmm. or, or, you know, they even if they don't need them, if they can, uh, don't feel they need them, if they can qualify, they'll, they'll take whatever they can get or they'll, they'll try. And so one, 
one idea is to really the the idea is that if we make it more challenging, right? If you have to develop, go through a few hoops, you'll weigh that cost. Well, if I don't really need these that badly, it's not worth my time, you know, going through this process, then maybe I won't apply. And so part of it is interpreted and in fact, this has actually been, a, interestingly, this is something that has been kind of tested in research. For example, um, I remember a job training program experiment a number of years ago where, um, they wanted to see if people who were receiving unemployment insurance um, really could be finding a job if they tried harder. And so they they told them if they were going to continue their, their benefits, they had to come in for meetings and, and trainings and things like that. And the idea was, well, let's create some ordeals, right, or challenges for them to have to navigate before they can get that. And then those people who really could get a job and don't want to deal with those hassles will go get a job. And so that was one of the things that the research suggested. Yeah, that some people just decided, no, I'll, I'll go get a job instead of, of collecting it. So that's, you know, so that's one argument is that we need we need to make it not so easy so that only the people who really need it will, will mm-hmm. ultimately get will persevere. Right. And actually, right. you know, do everything they need to. So the problem with that is, of course, is, you know, maybe that happens for a few cases, but what we've learned in the research, and I think the whole, you know, a lot of people who have Caesar have consistently found that those people who are often most in need face the greatest challenges to complying, for example, with some of those requirements. And and that's where, again, we as policymakers or or you know administer administrators of public programs can make decisions about how challenging or what we require in order to for example verify like you said that you have the income that makes you eligible or that your children are of the age they qualify for this or that benefit or that whatever you know particular program it is that the, the need exists there are ways we can make that easier or harder for people. And so part of it is thinking about, um, does the infrastructure we create for administering programs, is it designed to support access or is it designed to constrain or, you know, try to do this sorting activity, which some people think is, is necessary. So that's just kind of sharing some perspectives on you know why some people may think oh this is it's good to have these these hurdles or you know but you know who who is most affected by them and that's I think one of the things our research um, shows yeah and I mean even thinking about the example you gave about getting your license and having to go back three times yeah <laughs> you were able to do it um, because you were mm-hmm. able to take time off work and and yeah. access a car to get there. Uh, yeah. Somebody that doesn't have a car or that has a job, yeah, where they can't, uh, you know, take off so easily, uh, or they have, you know, limited days off. Um, going back a second or a third time is is really costly. Yeah, so, or yeah, yeah, exactly. If a bus route, if you don't have a bus route that that mm-hmm. comes by, you need to rely on someone else to give you a ride, or you right. have children um, that you have to pick up at school, or, or that or you have to be there for when they come back from school, and you don't have all the time in the world. Mm-hmm. You know, um, yeah, right. lots of ways in which um, it can be difficult to to follow up and comply yeah. with those requirements. 
Mm-hmm. And and the the bus route card, the transportation thing is something we're going to uh, come back mm-hmm. to, which turns out to be a, a big challenge. Um, but yeah, I, I I think you described the the motivation for these burdens um, very well, and it and it does you know it it makes sense that there should be something that prevents everybody from accessing this, I guess. And your article mentions this screening process of, 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 of using these burdens to, I guess, screen people out in in terms of screening out bad apples and bad bets being, and I guess that's, those are terms from the literature referring (laughs) to, to sort of people that people that don't deserve it and also people that don't need it. And so we could even, you know, we can distinguish between the, there, there's two types of people that we don't want to get it, people that don't need it and people that don't deserve it. Mm-hmm. Um, and coming back to, to the fact that you're mostly talking about children's access to programs, mm-hmm. it strikes me as very, I don't know, repugnant to say that children don't deserve the benefits because of something their parent did or didn't do. Um, so I feel like that's a that's a hard argument to make about labeling a child a, a bad apple in the sense that um, you're going to withheld their withhold their health care because of, of their parents' inability to jump through these hoops. Um, yeah, is, I mean, people recognize that, or is that? I mean, I think you have. I think you. This is why putting things in context, like we try to do, and in, in our research, I think, is really important because. You know, I, I don't particularly like the terms bad apples and bad pets. I, uh-huh. I, I point out they exist in the literature, right? Because this is the yeah. way people have honestly, like, you know, use these terms, right, to, to, to decide this. But so, for example, a bad apple where you think, oh, this person doesn't deserve it. So if you are in a community that is not very open to immigrants, right, and you have a, a parent who's, you know, you know, documents are undocumented, but is, is clearly an, an outsider to your community. Even if their children are, you know, you as citizens, um, you may look at that parent as not deserving, right? Because, well, right. you know, you, you know, we shouldn't be having to take care of your children here, right? Um, so, but, you know, that's the problem with the, the adult has to advocate for the children. I don't think necessarily thought is given to the fact that, you know, those children, as U.S. citizens, are our responsibility. And and what we do for them now is also going to affect, you know, the responsibilities we have to them later. And so, but I think that sometimes gets lost in a system where the adults are acting on, on behalf of the children and um, you know, in general, I mean, certainly one of the things we encounter is humans have to enact the rules and procedures of policy. And, you know, consciously or unconsciously, they may bring their own biases into it. For example, I mentioned earlier the example of of the, you know, undocumented father applying for, for WIC benefits for his child who, you know, did not have to have a passport, but was asked to bring that. And so, you know, that's an example where that might be an additional ask or requirement imposed on that person in terms of paperwork that isn't necessarily legit, but is done because someone has a perspective that, um, you know, I want to make it harder for this type of person. I don't, um, to be getting access to these benefits. 
Yeah. And I, I want to be clear to our listeners that, that uh, Carolyn's paper is not uh, advocating that uh, or, or using the, the bad apple language uh, to, to describe the children. But I mean, I was just struck by the fact that, I mean, it, it seems like some of the administrators were doing that. Yeah. Human nature is, is right. We, like I said, we don't necessarily, maybe even not always conscious of it, that we may treat people differently. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we, this has been documented in, in, in past studies too, about, you know, the people who are on the front lines of discern, of making the ultimate, ultimate decision of whether someone qualifies for a benefit or not can, can sometimes bring their own ideas, perspectives, and add their own kind of like I said, um, requirements or things like that that aren't necessarily part of, of law. But as, as I mentioned, you know, things get implemented on, we may have some federal laws and programs, but they get impl- if they get implemented by states and then localities, you can also put in perspective if there are, are organizations or offices where, you know, they don't have a lot of staffing and they don't have a lot of time for people. Um, they, you know, may not feel like they can or want to offer, you know, a lot of support or outreach to ensure that, for example, children get connected to these benefits. Mm-hmm. And the, the other thing that I guess we've sort of been dancing around that we mentioned loosely is that, you know, nothing is going to be perfect here. And there could be, you know, type one and type two errors, meaning that there are some people that should get it that don't get it. And there are other people that don't get it, that should get it. And, and there's, you can think about theoretically, there's, there's some sort of optimal amount of safety net services. Um, but we're, we're almost certainly never going to get exactly the right answer there or distribution there. And so I think my reading of this was that the real question for all of us as citizens and voters and participants in society and, you know, participants and, you know, members of communities is at the end of the day, do we want to provide a little bit too much of these safety net services or too little? And so I'm curious to hear your thought on that and also what role these administrative burdens play in deciding whether we do end up with too much or too little of these vital resources. Well, I mean, the interesting thing about healthcare, right, is that, um, you know, in our society, we do not ultimately deny people access to healthcare if they need it, right? So if a, if a parent is does not have, um, you know, regular doctor coverage for their child and something happens and they feel like their child's, um, you know, health and, or well-being is in danger, they'll take them to the emergency room and we will address it there, right? Mm-hmm. But it's a it ultimately is a much more costly and less effective way to do it, right? So for children's health insurance, I would say we would err on getting more covered versus worrying about a few who maybe could have been covered some other way, um, but happened to be on our public health insurance program. I mean, one of the things we know, and for example, that we encountered, you know, Mr. Garcia's story as an example, where one of his son's was autistic and had regular therapy. And so that was covered by the public health insurance. And he was not aware the coverage had been dropped till he went to the provider for the regular appointment was told, oh, you're no longer on 10 care. 
And so that started his first, you know, kind of, I don't know, want to call it an adventure or foray into trying to understand why the health insurance had been dropped, how you get access again. Um, in the meantime, his son goes without his therapy, right? Which is mm-hmm. this important part of him continuing and he's in school. Um, and, and so, you know, if you don't, if you lose that, you then have to navigate a whole other kind of set of uh, organizations or resources that you might reach out to, to try to help you get care from someone who will provide that kind of care in a charity way. So ultimately, by taking away the regular provider, we do much more harm, right? And yeah. it also, you know, you could keep going to the ER, but that's not the place that they deliver services like that, nor would they sure. connect with his regular records. So for this particular exam, I would say for that, for other children's nutritional programs and things like that, and we've started to do that, I think, a little bit in like, for example, school lunches, right? Rather than worry so much about whether... You know, some kids are more or less deserving of others in very high poverty districts. We allowed school districts now just to provide blanket coverage, you know, provide meals that any student in the school can get access to and not worry about whether the 20 percent who aren't actually below the poverty line that's typically required um, are de- really deserving or not. So I think that's an example of where yeah. we recognize that for children, we prefer to err on the side of 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 making sure they get access to the care. Right. Yeah, I think that makes a lot of sense. Um, and actually, that reminds me, we uh, we had Amy Ellen Schwartz from Syracuse on the podcast uh, a few episodes ago talking about New York City's policy change to give everybody free school lunches. Um, mm, yeah. Mm-hmm. And we did talk there a little bit about, I mean, it, there turned out to be a lot of benefits of it, but one of the other, one of the good things that happened was it was just way easier for schools and it lowered their costs because they didn't have to do all that paperwork of checking everybody. Exactly. Among other things. Yeah. So there are, I guess that's the, 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 you know, the argument, one of, one of several arguments against these administrative burdens is that it, it can actually lower costs because you don't have to hire someone to do all that checking, uh, and paperwork. That's another, I I think you might get into this, but that was another important aspect of our research was we documented the costs, right? Mm -hmm. So ultimately the, you know, the hurdles to getting kids connected to um, public health insurance, kids who are eligible, then left, as I was saying, you know, it's kind of describing Mr. Garcia's situation. Now your child suddenly doesn't have health insurance, Um, where do you go and how do you try to get your child the care they need? And so there's all these other, you know, your county health departments, community-based organizations that try to kind of, all of those organizations then start scrambling, right, and have to figure out how can we help this family and piecing together resources for them. And, you know, I think what we were showing is, right, so that there are all these spillover costs, um, mm-hmm. To other organizations and and on other programs, probably as well. You know, you can imagine if a child suddenly gets cut off from his um, his regular therapy, that might affect how he's progressing in school. Might need additional resources there. So there's a spillover um, 
uh, costs um, beyond the particular agency that you'd be interacting with to other organizations. And, and it's real. And then, of course, depending on the context, right, if you're in a poor rural area where even those resources are not easy to to access or they're really strained because of the level of need relative to availability um, that just you know just makes the family an even more precarious situation yep yeah for sure and and your research that that documented all this I guess this is a good time to talk about like how you mm-hmm. actually found these things out. Mm-hmm. Um, you and your colleagues used an approach called mixed methods research. I think this is probably the first or second, um, I think it's the first time we've had a, a mixed methods project or a research paper on the podcast. It's a mixture of methods. What is that mixture and, and why is it such an effective uh, way to go about finding out what's happening. Sure. So I, I think I can just tell you some basics about the the research that helped kind of illustrate this. So um, we started this work. Um, this project is part of what we call the Vanderbilt Policies for Action Research Lab, and the research lab is built on a partnership between state agencies. So um, my co-PI Melinda Button is um, long worked with the state. Um, Department of, of Health Services and our 10 care agencies and has housed administrative data in the Van Witt University Medical Center. And on the education side at the Peabody College, we have long worked with our uh, State Department of Education and housed data there. And so we proposed to merge children's health and education data so that we could learn more about, um, as we've been talking, right, the two areas are very intertwined and critical to children's healthy development, having mm-hmm. learned about their health education um, succeed. And so um, what we did was it took us several years, but we were able to get the agencies to agree to a partnership where we linked those administrative data. So we have administrative data from the Department of Health, Department of Education, and Ten Care over a substantial period going back to 2006. So that allowed us really, that was critical for us to identifying, you know, who are these children who rely on Medicaid? Um, where are they? How do we serve them? And, and you know, then to be able to look at both the health and education implications of <laughs> what we're studying here, administrative burden. But then um, as part of this, we, again, wanting to understand not just, you know, from the data analysis, uh, quantitative, this is where the mixing methods, right? So that's kind of a quantitative perspective. We can look at who these children are, what their outcomes look like, where are they, um, how are they succeeding um, in education, things like that. But we also wanted to understand what are the challenges um, that we are facing to serving them because, Frankly, Tennessee is, as, I'm, as we mentioned in the paper, is in the top 10 states with the highest poverty rates, and all of those 10 states are in the South. And it's not accidental, right? The social safety net in the South has often been known to be less generous than, than other parts of the country. Um, but there are also, I think, other you know circumstances that make it challenging to effectively serve these um, children. So what we did was we were able to get 
you know, information data with, you know, support from our partners too. So for example, we, we created, I guess, um, I'm trying to think of a good term for saying sample frames, which is an academic term to say we wanted yeah. to understand, for example, what are all the county health departments in um, Tennessee? Where are all the federally qualified health centers? Where are all the community anti-drug coalitions? Um, where are all the schools that have, uh, you know, school-based health centers. And so we did kind of this um, c- prepared um, the, the information that we needed to do sampling. And that sampling that we did, that means we are going to choose who to interview from across the state. We did that sampling relying on key information from our administrative data, right? So we wanted right. to, for example, um, so you got like the, a representative sample of you yeah, know, all the different also, parts of the state. We wanted to be representative, but within kind of capturing all parts of the state, we also wanted to, for example, prioritize distressed counties, um, okay. counties where the um, rate of opiate use and the consequences of that had been higher, right? So mm-hmm. thinking about what are those factors, some unique to Tennessee, some not unique. So the opiate crisis has affected our country, but it, Tennessee has been in the top you know, three states in terms of prescription rates and things like that. Okay. We also, so we had in our, in the course of our, of our work in the partnership, we had defined, you know, children who are poor, children of immigrants and children affected by the opiate crisis is kind of three um, more at risk groups. And so in our sampling, we did a mix of what we would call um, purposive or intentional sampling of, of areas where we thought the risks to children would be higher. And then just um, random sampling, which would be, as you were mentioning, trying to get a good representation. So we, we layered the two. We had random sampling plus purposive sampling to create these, uh, you know, kind of rosters of places we would first go to and um, I know you yeah. wanted to ask me about, you know, how did, you know, how did it work out in terms of getting our relationships with them and our response rates? And interestingly, you know, we thought in our, our, our interviewing did overlap a little bit with the start of the pandemic. And we, you know, we thought that it would be challenging to get people to talk to us because of, you know, like I mentioned, resource strain, you know, personnel limitations, things like that. But honestly, People wanted to talk. <laughs> they had okay. things they wanted to say, uh, frustrations they wanted to convey. Mm-hmm. They felt they that things were urgent. And so we actually, I think our good response rates came because people felt like, hey, this is opportunity for me to share. You know, this is what we're dealing with. And these are our frustrations. And these are the things we we think need to be changed. And that's, you know, kind of how our work evolved and how we also got to, I think, some very concrete policy recommendations in the end because we are literally listening to these people who were living yeah. these challenges day to day. Yep. Oh, for sure. Yeah. And I think that's, I mean, that's the the real power of mixed methods research and, and of the, this qualitative data is really, like you said, using the administrative data to find out, you know, where to look for the problem. Mm-hmm. And then once you know where to look, then you can, you know, dive in and really talk to people that are living it, like you said. Um, yeah. my, my only other question about the, uh, the, the research side, which I always like to ask is, can you say anything about like how you developed and built and maintained 
your, it seems like, very good relationship with the State Department of Health, Department of Education. I know your, your lab at Vanderbilt, I guess, helps sustain it. But how did those relationships come about and, and, and how do you maintain them? Yeah, I mean, it, it, it's it, it's a very, we've created infrastructure to maintain those relationships. We have um, quarterly partner meetings with our partners and then regular interactions in between those meetings. Um, we created a, our research agenda is co-created with our partner agencies, our state agencies, so that they, of course, for example, TenCare was not happy. That's the state Medicaid agency was, you know, not pleased with the statistics showing that Tennessee came at the top of disconnections of children Mm -hmm. um, from, from public health insurance. So they were aware of the problem and, and did want to better understand, you know, what was happening. Of course, they also, you know, when you engage in research, you kind of put yourself out there for some things that may, you know, come back looking critical of the agencies. But they were willing to, you know, let us dive in and try to understand it. So, for example, you know, one of the things we learned in our research is when the state was trying to, um, you know, use its resources better to to make uh, ten care applications more accessible. Instead of having, you know, people go to windows where they would talk to a person, they set up kiosks, right, um, that were supposed to be an electronic kiosk where, you know, now you think it's comparable to, for example, now you go to some fast food restaurants and you go to the kiosk to order rather than to the person who you just tell what you want, right? Some people like that. Some people don't like that. And so one of the things we found is that um, those kiosks didn't work for everybody, Um you know, if you're a grandparent taking care of your of your grandchild as as the primary guardian, uh, going to a kiosk to figure out how to get that child, you know, reconnected to ten care or connected to ten care is not an easy thing. So they didn't work for everybody, right? So it mm-hmm. wasn't that, you know. So those are things that we learned, right, from yeah. from our research. Yeah. And just to make sure everyone everyone remembers, ten care is Tennessee's adaptation of Medicaid. Yeah. It's a state Medicaid program. Yeah. Okay. Okay. So, so yeah, I think we have a good sense of, of this sort of amazing data that you went to great efforts to collect, uh, very rich data, um, multiple sources. Let's dive into the findings then. The first, uh, I guess, obvious finding that we've already talked about is that administrative burdens are very, very real, both in terms of taking time to learn what to do and then also actually physically doing everything you have to do. The, you know, you mentioned the kiosk. I guess that's an example of, well, that maybe that's an example of both sort of learning where to go, what to do, how to do it. Um, but I mean, there, there's definitely, there are definitely different burdens, but with similar consequences for low-income children. Is that right? Yeah, I think, you know, to give you another example of, of one of the things that we found burdensome. So the state, you know, for many cases still relied on a kind of paper process, right? Where the, you know, the, the parent would, or caregiver would fill out the application for on behalf of the child for Medicaid and then mail it in, right? Um, and then, 
as we all know, right, mail is is not 100% in terms of getting things there timely and, and always when we need it. But so, and then if let's see a clarification happen, the agency might send a letter out and say, okay, you have 10 days to respond to this. Well, what we found is that those letters, if they, in, in, if they arrived after, like, let's say you got it to your home, but you got it after the 10 day expiration date for no fault of your own, right? Just however long it took them to get it into the mail and the mail and get to you, then you would have to start all over again. You couldn't just pick up where you were. You'd have to redo the application. The other thing was if you had multiple children, you would do a separate application for each one. And so repeating the same information. And the thing just takes is, time. Yeah, it takes time. And then, of course, this issue with the mail and making you start over. And the, yeah. the, so the unintended disconnections. And I mean, I think the other reason why we look at this as a, as a, a necessary burden is that there are other states that for decades have been using systems that are much more, we know to be much more effective, right? Um, and I gave, we gave the example in the paper of Florida Access, where years ago they said this isn't working. Um, it was burdensome on both sides in terms of, of, you know, having these brick and mortar offices where people were not being served very well. People would wait long hours. It would be this, again, back and forth, come back with this information, come back with that. Um, uh, anyway, um, and, you know, the, they had won an award, an Innovations and Government Award for their system, which streamlined those processes. They have a four-page application. They went mm-hmm. from a 15-page application to a four-page application. Tennessee is still at a 15-page application, right? We know wow. we could do it more efficiently. And they also have it that once you're in the system, you don't have to keep providing that same information. They pull it in, right? And so if we're capable of doing that, but again, Almost as if it's a exercise that people have to go through. You know, no, repeat it all again. Right? So, yeah. So, so yeah. I mean, it's a conscious effort to to keep the fifteen page application. Y- yeah, you mean to? Right? I mean, for like the, that's a policy choice in itself. Yeah, that the state yeah, is I mean, making. Yeah, to keep a, a a long application, and also the the requirement that people you know, mail it in, um, or respond to, uh, and just, you know, again, recognizing that, um, that this is, and, and the other point we make is that, um, where we were talking earlier about how some of these burdens can hit certain families harder, um, you know, families who may be more transient in their housing, um, for, you know, for reasons of job changes or need to, you know, to, to, you know, stay stable um, economically, um, it's very easy for them to miss, right? Meal and correspondence. And so, um, yeah, oh, yeah, those for people sure. are, yeah. Well, uh, hopefully your findings will, will um, get out to the people that, that make those decisions that, that need to see this. Um, well, and, and to their credit, um, so we, you know, the state, of course, was very aware we were doing this work. And we, at the time that we were compiling our findings and recommendations, um, the state had one of the largest surpluses in the country of unspent um, TANF funds as temporary assistance for needy families. 
And they were oh, wow. looking at us what to do with it. <laughs> we said, yeah. well, we'll give you a wish list here. Um, some of the things we talk about, right, uh, to facilitate better transportation, to, you know, improve uh, and, and, and working, thinking both not just for the families seeking benefits, but also for the organizations that end up being the intermediaries for those families, right? How can they be better supported so they're not doing so much work to to help make those connections with the state benefits? And then uh, on the on the on the provider side of things, one of the things I found really fascinating about your work that that again only would have been uncovered by this mixed methods um, mm-hmm. type of analysis is. It almost seems like there's an underground economy of favors that sort of kicks into gear when a kid who really needs help can't get it through the the proper uh, you know official safety net. So the best example I thought you know if if a kid is temporarily uncovered uh, for their health insurance but they get injured. Um, uh, can you say a little bit about how, I mean, that's certainly inefficient and and costly, but it also really speaks to how many people really want to help these families and these kids. Um, you know, another example of people at the office paying out of their own pocket, you know, to help a family get gas money or whatever they needed. Um, it, it, I mean, that it, in some sense, it seems like that, I mean, the system is, is broken a little bit. Yeah. Yeah, no, it was um, the one thing that we heard very consistently wherever we went in the state was that the people in organizations, whether they were public organizations like county health departments and um, your United Way type of organizations, you know, housing organizations, they were constantly taking out of their own pockets to, to as you mentioned, you know, if you have, um, I, I have so many examples I clearly remember from our interviews, for example, the yeah. one where um, a mother and father show up with a, a sick baby and, um, oh no, the father wasn't there. The mother shows up with a sick baby and other children in in with her, right, in tow. Mm-hmm. And they take a look at the county health department and realize that child needs immediate care. Right. Mm -hmm. Well, now they're in a rural area and there's no emergency room really close by. Right. And so they have to figure out how to transport mom and baby um, as quickly as possible. But they don't have car seats. Right. Right. And they suddenly can't, um, you know, get age appropriate car seats for each of the children in the family. And so Mm -hmm. they had to figure out how to get the mom transported to the nearest um, hospital where she could be helped. And then they had the children that they needed to somehow care for until another adult could come get them. And so right. they are taking out of their pockets to facilitate transportation. They're taking on child care for the kids with some concern, right? Like, well, what sure. if they can't come back? No, what if no one shows up in a day or no one comes back within a day to get the kids, right? Maybe, right, right, right. You know, who knows what the circumstances will be with the mom at the hospital. And so, mm-hmm. but they do this because, you know, what else do we do? You don't want right. to see, you know, a child at serious risk for some severe health consequence have that happen, right, in your office. Yep. So this is, and, you know, it's interesting because they said, like, we're not just pulling out those rare stories, we're in these situations every day. And, Mm -hmm. you know, so what they mentioned, for example, that the state had previously had a program that provided 
of free car seats. And these organizations could get them, but the program had been canceled. And now they literally, you know, face these circumstances where they didn't have, um, they couldn't give car seat to the mom and say, here, you know, here you go. You can keep this now and then you're, you're set in the future. So, right. um, you know, that was one of the recommendations we, we gave to the state. Can you reinstate this program, which yep. everybody was saying, we miss that. We need that. It was critical. Yeah. yeah. And actually that example of, uh, I remember reading about that in the paper about them, um, you know, transporting the mom to the hospital, the hospital's far away. Um, there's, there's a term for this when the hospitals are far away. Uh, and that term is a resource deserts. Uh, and another, I think, important result of your study is that you find that there are a number of, of what we'd consider resource deserts or, or places where there's not a lot of healthcare and, and other resources nearby. Um, and this in itself puts a big burden and tax on the social safety net. Do you want to say a little bit about you know what what is the official definition of a resource desert and and where do you find them in Tennessee? Yeah, this is another example where our mixed methods approach was really helpful because we could um, use our administrative data to look at, um, first of all, where the state was allocating its resources. So we mapped, um, we, so we could use the administrative data um, that the state keeps to understand, you know, where are the families who are poor and with, with particular needs for, for services and supports, where is the state allocating the most funds across, you know, counties in the, in the state? So we literally mapped that first and we showed that, for example, um, there was the not what we had hoped, the pattern of results was not what we had hoped in that where there were more needy children. For example, there was less money going for food and nutrition programs um, and things like this. So we could, first of all, we could map that and we could see that we weren't doing a good job of, you know, filling in with state resources where there was greater need. But then it was also, I mean, there were so many ways in which, um, you know, resource, uh, so many different factors that were kind of contributing to the most severe resource deserts. So for example, um, rural areas have been harder hit by the opiate epidemic. Um, it's also the places where, um, you know, for example, hospitals with emergency rooms have closed down, right, because they don't have enough pain patients, right, and, and um, to sustain, or, or even um, medical practices, you know, talking to a doctor who is in his 70s, and he said he no longer, he, he did not make any money from his medical practice because too few people could pay, and, uh, you know, the public health insurance wasn't um, paying at a particular high rate for a lot of the services he did. Um, but he, he stayed with it because he realized he was the only resource for the community within, you know, an hour or two um, for families. And then, you know, when you don't have public transportation in rural areas, so rural areas were really um, challenged. They had the opiate crisis. They had a declining um you know, healthcare resources, assets in the communities. They had transportation issues. There's no, uh, you can't get an Uber or Lyft in these places. Um, you can't, uh, there's no bus transportation. And then, you know, um, if you have to go farther, you're going to need more gas money and things like that. So those 
factors together really compounded to make it that much more challenging for families and the organizations trying to help them to navigate those um, burdens. And it came through over and over um, in our interviews in different places across the state. This was a really critical problem. Yeah. And then so uh, related to that, I guess one one answer might be, okay, well, let's um, let's move these resources around. But is is that enough or would that just sort of shift shift the, the missing resources from one place to another? Um, so it, do we need more resources and, and money for the safety net overall and then sort of target that to the deserts or, or is it as simple as, as moving things around? Do you think? I mean, it's, 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 it is more complicated than one would think. Um, so for example, um, I mentioned that, uh, you know, one of the things that Tennessee has intentionally tried to do is locate at school-based health centers in, in areas, right. Where those, those resources are more limited. But when you talk to the people coordinating services in those centers, right. You have to be able to staff them. Right. And, so for, you know, if you're trying to hire, um, you know, school counselors or social workers and they're looking at coming to work in this rural area where their caseloads are going to be much higher, right, than they might in an area that's more well-resourced, um, the needs of the kids are, are greater and they're the services and, and things available to them to directly work and deal with that are more limited as well, it's it's hard, right? It's hard to get people to want to work and stay in those circumstances. And, you know, we heard over and over that, you know, they get someone hired in, they get them trained, and they'd be like so overwhelmed immediately that they couldn't get them to stay. So I think it's, um, it, it's a real challenge, right? Um, and this is one of the things we also heard is that as the communities kind of get drained of, of, of those assets and even, you know, people who can pick up and leave will leave, they're increasingly left with the, the poorest of the poor, the most challenged with even fewer people and, and resources around them to help them, you know, navigate those challenges. So it's, uh, it's, you like to be able to say it's something you could throw money at. Um, and maybe there's some amount additional you could pay um, people to, to make up for some of the additional challenges. But, it, I mean, it's, it's, it's not so easy, right? It's not just saying, oh, well, let's just, you know, increase their budget a little bit more. It's, it's a deeper problem, I think. Yeah. So I think those were the main, I, I guess, results. Uh, did we miss any main findings that you wanted to make sure we talk about before we get into the policy uh, implications? Yeah, I think there's a couple of things I would, I, I'll just kind of say some of the things to me that were sure. maybe not entirely surprising, but but unexpected and maybe unexpected at how often we heard them. Okay. Um, you know, the one thing that you, you typically think about a caregiver being a parent or um, someone of, you know, whatever middle age and then maybe their prime earning, prime earnings uh, age. But um, we found so many cases um, where grandparents and even great grandparents were the primary caregivers for the children. And as I was mentioning earlier, thinking about having to navigate an electronic kiosk, 
Um, and then things like transportation, for example, um, you know, they may, may less likely to drive as you as you get older, you feel less comfortable. And so um, the extent to which that was um, came up over and over surprised me. I mean, not that I don't didn't know that, you know, grandparents do sometimes become the caregivers, but that's, for example, um, one of the consequences of the opiate crisis and other drug crises that have followed it is that, um, you know, that's, that's what has happened and families end up, you know, sometimes getting split. Um, and, and then the other one that one of the documents that I was, I hadn't thought about it until I heard it over and over was that having to produce a birth certificate was so often a barrier to completing some of these applications. And if you think about it, you know, if you're a family member, first of all, if you're if your family member or if your family has had to move a lot, um, and maybe sometimes you pick up an area that you can imagine that could be a piece of paper you would misplace or lose or just not have ready access to or remember. Um, and then, you know, it costs about and I, I we looked at across the states, it varies a little bit, but it, it was fifteen dollars in Tennessee and you know, we might think, oh, fifteen dollars—that's not much. But for a family making the decision about whether your know, fifteen dollars might mean, you know, um, you know, a day or two of meals, um, that would be something that they would would be hard for them. So my thought was, well, you know, is a birth certificate, given it such a critical document, is that something we can waive the the fees for, or? Reduce the fees, right? Just like we do for generic drugs. We, we make a sliding scale feel, make it easier for them to get that basic document because I literally could not believe how often I heard that. Um, so, yeah. And then the similar with the uh, grandparents or great grandparents mm-hmm. um, might have trouble finding that document. Yeah, uh, exactly. You know, if, exactly. Yeah, <laughs> right. too. Yeah, and then of course it, there's there's an administrative burden of of even if you have the money there's a, a burden of of getting the document there's yes. you know instructions and websites and whatever you have to fill out to get that yeah, yeah that yeah. I thought that was that was a very good um, another good example of where the the mixed methods really identify a, mm-hmm. a, a a somewhat small but also easy fix um, yeah consequential yeah yeah for sure so. Um, that, that along the lines of the, the birth certificate policy idea, you have several other, what I, I consider relatively low cost, I'd imagine, you know, not particularly contentious politically, um, ideas to reduce these administrative burdens. Um, do you want to talk about, you know, what are your, you know, three or four, like, best policy suggestions that states and and local leaders should think about? Sure. I mean, so, you know, I've I've mentioned a number of them, right? Like um, there, so for example, um, and coming to transportation, right? So there is, there is a a transportation, for example, I think within um, the Medicaid program, and again, states might differ in how they enact these, but there is a transportation benefit so like if a mother has to take a child to the doctor's appointment, um, you know, she can get um, some a, a, a small amount to, to help cover the transportation, but it will not cover if she has to bring two children, right? So you can't, 
Um, so if you wanted to just say, okay, I'm going to go ahead and get my three children immunized before school starts, right? You could not bring each of them with you. You have to set up three different appointments. And then, of course, if you can only take one child, you may have to have childcare for the other two. So a simple rule like that, limiting the transportation to one child with a parent, greatly increases the cost of that parent, right? Having to get care for the children when you take the one, not being able to combine appointments. And, you know, it's, it's, it's more time for and resources for everybody. Not to mention, you would think it would cost the state less, right, to do one trip with the mom with the children. So, um, but yeah, that's an example of, of a program. So I mentioned the, you know, reviving the program that allows um, uh, organizations to, to purchase car seats to give to mm-hmm. for safe transportation of kids. Um, mm-hmm. Not limiting um, transportation support um, by mileage to nearest service because that, you know, again, does... It, it may limit what you can do and, and the, the resource right. that can be provided. Is that usually like a reimbursement, like a, like a cash reimbursement for miles traveled? Um, I, or, or is it actual know, like provision of like, like having a, of, a, a van or a driver provide yeah, this transportation? Is, this is something that our community-based organizations had pointed out um, that, yeah, they were, they were, limited right and so if you're if you're going to be taking so the the other point they're making is when they take money out of their budgets do things other than the direct services that they are are part of their core mission right like county health department ensuring vaccinations or things like that when they do that that limits what they can you know what they can do in their in their core services and so you know yeah don't make them take out of their other budgets. Provide sufficient funds for transportation to, you know, the services yeah. we need to connect people with. And um, the other thing, of course, I mentioned is that, you know, these um, agencies and community resources were having to hire people to do things like help, for example, we, we call them navigators, right? Help people navigate the bureaucracy. And if they're helping people do all this work navigating, they're not doing the other kinds of direct services that they could be doing. Um, so um, those were, you know, again, specific recommendations. And then we mentioned, for example, simplifying applications. Um, yeah. Yeah. And, and also um, the, you know, making, you know, so the other thing I mentioned about Florida access is if, if your um, certificate you need to access uh, your birth certificate or other documentation you need to access a program is already scanned and on record because they would scan them and be there. You don't have to bring it in. We could do that, right? That would Mm -hmm. immensely help those families to have electronic imaging of their documents that they don't have to carry them around every time they they go look um, for these kinds of supports. Yeah, that really struck me as a, I mean, just like improving the data sharing and communication between Mm -hmm. agencies. I mean, if you think about it, you're right. Like it would be so easy to have the birth certificate, the school records, you know, whatever else, uh, just upload it on one, you know, one computer somewhere where, you know, whoever needs the information can go and get it. Yeah. It seems such like a a low cost thing to do. Um, And it's, it's been done. It's been demonstrated to be very successful. Um, you mm -hmm. know, the example I mentioned earlier about Florida, you know, 
they had a hurricane and things were disastrous. They changed their system. They had another hurricane and it was as smooth as possible. They went from having had you know, weeks of people in lines to people getting everything they needed within a day or two. So, yeah. Um, yeah. So, so what do you think is preventing states from being slow to do this when, when it's been shown to be doable and not just doable, but, but beneficial? Is it just like the status quo bias? <laughs> you know, I think, you know, um, I mean, some of these issues are politicized, right? Um, and I think that's probably a particularly big barrier right now. I mean, I see, you know. It, and there's legitimate concerns about data security, I'm sure. Yeah, yeah, of course. And that's, I mean, that is also sometimes you hear other people say, um, you know, they can't, they kind of feel a little uncomfortable when they find out, oh, the state already has that information on you. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> so yeah, yeah, some people may feel unsettled about it, but I think there's also just, um, for example, you may remember this when Kentucky, which is a nearby state, when the former governor wanted to have work requirements um, added to, you know, access to the, the health insurance program, it was pointed out that that the cost of administering the program and verifying everything would be more than what they would save in his perception that there might be people, you know, getting access to those benefits that didn't need them. He stated explicitly he didn't care. His point was he wanted, he felt that this needed to be, you know, a condition, a requirement. So I think that's another thing to keep in mind going back to our our discussion earlier is, is some people feel that these, that it should be hard. It should be hard to get access. Yeah. And that's, Um, it's it's just, it's a, it's a societal, uh, political kind of value based, um, thing that, that, um, intervenes in what we think could be more efficient, um, effective administration, especially if you think about, as we talked earlier, the long, long term cost to children of not getting them, you know, basic health and nutrition, um, education services early on. Right. So, yeah, and I mean, that just to reiterate, I, I just came away from, from your paper and our conversation just thinking over and over again that so many of these things, I mean, these are conscious choices that we're making to, you know, we're, we're consciously choosing to make some of these services harder to get. Um, yeah. Now, the one of the, the last... Uh, policy suggestions you made was relaxing the physical address requirement. And um, I thought that's another thing I, I, I wouldn't have thought of that as, as being one of the bigger hurdles, but it turns out, it turns out that it is. Um, and even for people that aren't necessarily moving a lot, um, just getting some sort of proof of address can be, can be challenging. So how would, uh, why would it be useful to relax that requirement? Well, there are definitely families for whom, you know, a consistent physical dress is not a possibility, right? We have some of our most vulnerable children um, regularly live in in some kind of um, um, temporary shelter, whether it's actual homeless shelter or they are, you know, living, combining, you know, um, uh, resources with an extended family that may be temporary. We have an increasing number of 
of families in those circumstances. Um, it's, and in some places, of course, in the country, it's even worse um, in terms of that. But that is something that, again, um, having to have a physical address that you can say is your own, that the, you know, your, the mail comes in your name, that is not possible for, for people. If you think about the programs that we're targeting, it's going to be a larger share of, of that group, right? If, you, if your income falls below the poverty line, there's a lot greater chance that your housing is, is less stable. And, and yeah, so the physical address um, was truly a barrier, especially as, like I said, if you had to submit your application, you had to be able to respond to uh, a letter that might be mailed with a follow-up question. If you don't get that, or, I mean, you can even imagine, right, if, if you're, the mail is shared among people um, in the household, that it might, you know, be missed by one person. It, it's, it's, a, it's, right. a real, it's a real issue, so. Right. Um, and again, it, if you're of the mind that you want to make these resources harder to access, then this requirement, um, you know, serves your goal, I guess. Um, okay. And so we talked about all of these policy solutions. We talked um, also a little bit about just generally reducing the complexity of the application process. Um and I just want to reiterate, my interpretation there was that it's, a, it's really a win-win in the sense that you are reducing the costs to the provider in terms of the personnel they need uh, to verify and handle the paperwork, um, and you're increasing access to the people that need it. Um, so that one, again, seems like a win-win. Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And so... I know I'm probably being repetitive, but the, these recommendations all seem so straightforward in terms of like, they're going to help people now, they're going to help people in the future, they're going to create social benefits, um, they're going to reduce public spending in other areas now and down the road. You know, it, it, it just really seems like we're, we're making a policy choice, um, you know, and, and I realize public spending is um, hyper-political. Yeah. Now and I guess you know it's always been to some extent, but it seems like it's it's trending in the the, the more and more political direction. Yeah, I think it's it's a bit of a challenge, right? When um, the consequences, the bigger consequences and potentially negative consequences for children, you know, come further down the line, or as as you mentioned earlier, the mixed methods research is really helpful because you know. I heard so many real stories, right, that people could relate to um, about, you know, what it's like to be put in that situation where you show up for your child's doctor's appointment and you're told, sorry, we can't help you anymore until you straighten this out. And it takes you two years to do it. So, And that's what I appreciate so much um, about your your excellent paper is that it just it highlights the consequences uh, of these choices. and of these policies so well. Yeah, sometimes the statistics just, uh, um, can we see them so much, right? And they're, they're in our face in every form of social media. Um, sometimes they can't quite do justice to, you know, the story of a real parent, um, you know, what they've been through, just trying to do what any parent would want to do for their child, right? Get them the, the, meet their basic needs, so... And, and one last thing, 
uh, and I, I know we've already gone over time a little bit. I, I appreciate you sticking around. Um, the, I guess the other elephant in the room here it, that we haven't talked about much is the COVID pandemic. Um, and I was wondering if, if you want to share any thoughts about that and how that ex, uh, exacerbates some of the problems we talked about today. And my thinking was just that it's a lot like the opioid epidemic in the sense that the opioid epidemic disproportionately hurt certain communities in certain parts of the state um, and, and stretched those safety net resources thin. And it seems like the COVID pandemic is, is very similar in that way, right? It, it's disproportionately hurting certain demographic groups, um, uh, certain industries, certain labor markets. Um, do we know anything there about sort of how the pandemic um, I think is, yeah. Yeah, I think to kind of characterize it um, briefly is to say that, you know, I kind of mentioned what it feels like the social isolation in some of these communities and your lack of immediate access to resources. You know, the COVID pandemic just exacerbated that. And there were certainly, for example, a lot of you know, school-based health coordinators who were very worried about um the, the children that they serve when they could not see them coming in each day and, and check on their needs and understand whether they were being met. And they did a lot of work to, for example, to try to figure out, could they get meals to families yet? You know, that we, we were given pandemic EBT benefits, um, electronic benefits um, for children who would have been getting meals at schools. But again, states had to have their own processes for how they were distributed and some made them easier than others. And so that was another kind of challenge that we saw that was a problem exacerbated in the pandemic was, you know, making sure kids were getting access to those nutritional benefits, which, you know, resources were provided to ensure they could, but there had to be, you know, different processes were used and some were easier and, um, and than others. So, yeah. yeah. Um, well, well said, uh, we are, uh, we're not just out of time. We're, we're well over time and we've covered, uh, we've covered a lot of ground here. Um, but I think that's a, a reflection of, of how important and thorough and wide ranging your, your study is. Um, I, I really do think it's a, an important topic and it does a really great job of highlighting these issues that we might not, uh, that a lot of people might overlook or, or not be aware of. Um, is there any one last thought you'd like to, to leave our listeners with? Well, I guess I would just um, encourage encourage the listeners to think as they go through their through their regular business or have these kind of encounters, whether um, it's with you know a state agency or other organization, as to you know what it might be like for someone who doesn't have the resources they have, like a, a car, like you said, or easy access to transportation, or can afford the, your gas money and and to pay a babysitter and things like that. Um, to kind of think about that and and you know maybe think about is when we have the opportunity, for example, to vote on policies or vote for um, you know particular um, candidates who who support maybe making, um, as you mentioned earlier, should we err on the side of being more generous or less generous to think about that when you, you know, make those decisions. So anyway, yeah, thank you. I just want to say thank you for the opportunity to, to share about our research. We most importantly, 
um, want to do it and want it, and we're excited to have it published in the Journal of Policy Analysis and Management because we 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 think that it has um, there are important changes we could make in policy, and we wanted to get that information to people who might be able to act on it. Um, like I said, if you're a regular person going to vote or or someone who's actually in a role where you can 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 change how things are done, that's what we'd love to see. Yeah, absolutely, uh, and and well said. Um, and, and thank you again uh, so much for taking the time to talk to us today. Great. Thank you. Yeah. Uh, our guest today has been Professor Carolyn Heinrich, the Patricia and Rhodes Hart Professor of Public Policy, Education, and Economics at Vanderbilt University. The paper is now available in JPAM, Consequences of Administrative Burden for Social Safety Nets that Support the Healthy Development of Children. So until next time, I've been your host, Seth Gershenson at American University, and Happy New Year to everybody, and Happy New Year to you, Dr. Heinrich, and and thanks again for chatting today. Thank you, Seth. I really appreciate it. Thank you for listening. This has been a production of JPAM, the Journal of Policy Analysis and Management, in conjunction with American University's School of Public Affairs. Please follow us on the APAM website and search for the JPAM podcast.